for the choir director for flute accompaniment, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer or my sacrifice to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Verse 7. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There's nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. Let us pray. God, as we consider David and his prayer for divine protection in the midst of wicked adversaries, Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand how this psalm points to Jesus and how this psalm points us to the victory that we can have through him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm chapter 5 is a a lot like Psalm chapter 4, which we considered last week, in that it is for the choir master and from David. The only difference in the heading between this psalm and the one we read last week is is that it's for wind instruments, likely for flutes, excuse me, yes, that it's for wind instruments, likely for flutes, rather than to be played on strings. Longman says Psalm 5 calls on God for help in the midst of a struggle with deceitful and dangerous enemies. The psalm doesn't really tell us what's going on in the background. We don't we can't read about David's life and say, well, this is exactly when David wrote this psalm. We don't know exactly when he wrote the psalm, but it's a time when he needs protection, and he understands that only God can give him the protection that he needs. And you know, the same is true for us. It's true for you, and it's true for me. It's really true for everybody who loves God. Our fleshly desires don't want us to love Jesus. Satan does not want you to love Jesus and live for him. And the general system of the world, of worldliness, does not want you to live for Jesus. It wants you to delight in self-promotion and self-preservation. And these are ever-present distractions threatening to rob you of the joy that is found only when we live for Christ and Christ alone. So what do we do? What do we do when the tempter when the wickedness of the world, when the wickedness of the enemy, when the wickedness, quite frankly, within our own hearts wants to well up and defeat us, how can we respond? I believe we see four ways that we can respond in Psalm chapter 5. First, 
we must humbly and expectantly cry out to God. Secondly, we must see wickedness from God's perspective. Third, we must pursue God's presence and reject the world's promises. And finally, we must delight in the Lord. And I I know I, I didn't get those points on the back of your bulletin today. Not to fear. We'll cover each of them in sequence. So first, we must humbly and expectantly cry out to God. We we saw this in verse 3, that David prays, and he offers himself as a sacrifice, and he's watchful, he's expectant. By now, I, I think you've probably noticed that prayer is very important to David. Psalm 3 was a morning prayer. Psalm 4 was an evening prayer. And now Psalm 5 is another morning prayer. At every turn, David faced opposition, and what did he do? He prayed. Uh, Do you feel like that every turn you face opposition in your Christian life? Do you feel like every time that you get a good run in walking with Jesus, that there's adversity waiting, there's something ready to trip you up and cause you to stumble? The answer to those adversities is found in prayer. Perhaps that's why Martin Luther wrote, I have so much to do that I will spend the first three hours in prayer. You say, my, my life's so busy, I don't have time to pray. I, I, I've got so much going on in my life, I don't have time to pray. Those are all opportunities to be derailed in your walk with Christ. Would to God that we would take the posture and position of Martin Luther or King David, and we would say, I've got so much before me today that I'll spend the first moments or even three hours of my life in prayer. You see, in the middle of the war, our warrior king is there. He's ready to be our shield. It concludes, the psalm concludes with the word shield, and it's the, it's the word for super shield or mega shield. It's rarely used in the Old Testament, but God is ready to be my super shield in the midst of the storm when, when we surrender to him in prayer. Whatever temptation is before us, whatever excuse is before us, we cry out to God in the battle. What is what David does, by the way, in the face of his enemies is a, is a picture of what Jesus did for us in the face of the cross. As the people mocked him and said, why don't you save yourself? He communed with his father. And like David and like Jesus, we can ask God, look at verse 1, to lend an ear to our words. God, give us an ear. Lord, we know you don't literally have physical ears because God is spirit, but we know that you hear. God, we want to bend your ear for a moment. Please hear my words. But he doesn't just ask that his words would be heard, but he also says, consider our groanings. Consider my groanings. Groanings are the faint utterances of someone in distress. It's a lament. Have you ever gotten to the place in your walk with God? Has the adversity ever been so great that you go to the Lord in prayer knowing that you want to tell him something, but all you can get out are groanings? Praise God, even the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings. And David says, God, would you consider my groanings? Would you take these ill-defined meditations and thoughts? Would you make something of them and help me to come to the place where I'm utterly relying on you for victory? And here's the, here's the thing. As we linger in prayer, 
over the wickedness that is constantly threatening to derail us. Groanings give way to a cry for help in verse 2, which is a cry of anguish. It's the cry of the oppressed. It's the cry of those who are reaching the breaking point. When we are about to break under the weight of wickedness in this world and in our own selves and in our families, when we're about to break, we can cry out as David did to my king and my God, and we can know that he hears us. Look at this. He continues in verse 2, and he says, For to you I pray. Does that strike you as interesting? It, it does me. Because if you took a, a pen and you just crossed through those words, you would already know, not that you should do that, don't, don't cross through your Bible, but if you were to do that, you would already know that David was crying out to God. He just said so. And yet, he pauses in the middle of this psalm to say to God, God, I'm, I'm crying out to you. I'm not ashamed of my dependence upon you. I'm going to declare my dependence upon you. I'm not calling on my money. I'm not calling on my mama. I'm not calling an old friend. I'm not even asking Facebook. I am calling on you. I'm not calling on my degrees or my title or my position or my authority or my experience. This is King David talking. And David says, I'm praying to you, God. It's all I've got in this battle. It's all I've got that can overcome the adversity that I'm facing. It's all that I've got to overcome the temptation to be a defeatist and to throw in the towel and to give up. It's all I've got in this world. God, to you, I am praying. I'm reminded of Simon Peter after Jesus tells his disciples in John 6 that they've got to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood in order to really be in the kingdom of God. People run away and say, what kind of freaky faith is this? What are you talking about? And Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave too? And Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom else would we go? There's nowhere else to go to win the war that you are in than to my king and my God. For to this king we will pray. And David trusts that God hears his voice. The word voice in verse 3 is the same word as the word sound that we found in verse 2. You see, God doesn't just hear the words that you pray. It's not like you just wrote it out on a piece of paper and there it is and God presented it and he considered it. He hears the sound with which you pray, the voice with which you pray, the utterances, the inflection and the emotion and the desire and the passion. All of that is brought before God and he hears it. David is, a, is in a fight for his life and for the kingdom. And he rises in the morning and he prays. I'm not waiting until lunchtime after I've tried a bunch of other options. I'm coming to you in the morning, God, because if God is your only real option, you may as well call on him first thing in the morning. And David does not stop with prayer, but he moves to preparation the word prepare or order is a priestly term for laying on the altar, laying the altar fire and arranging the pieces of the burnt offering. You see, I want you to listen to this, North Roanoke. This is, God showed me this this week as I was studying verse 3. Praying. There's a lot of people that want to talk about prayer and the power of prayer. 
But it's God who has the power, and in prayer, we're accessing God who has power, right? If you're praying to Buddha, it's powerless prayer. The, the, only, the only places where there's power is, is in praying to the God who has all power. And when we go to the God who has all power, but we really don't want to give ourselves to him, that's still powerless praying. David doesn't just pray. He prays and says, I'm preparing a sacrifice for you. Praying that stops short of preparing ourselves to be offered in service to God is prayer that stops short of the power of God. God, as I pray... I'm also preparing a sacrifice. I'm not just coming to you to get me out of a jam. I'm coming because I want you. I'm ready to thrive as one who represents you on the earth. I'm ready to do whatever it takes to join with you in conquering everything that is opposed to you by giving you my life. So David, excuse me, so like David and like Jesus, we pray and we prepare the totality of ourselves to be offered in service to our king and then we expectantly watch. The word watch expresses the posture of faith. Micah says, as for me, I will look to Yahweh. I will wait for the God of my salvation. God, I'm here. I'm bringing the war to my warrior king. I'm expecting you to defeat that which wants to stand against me as I live for you. North Roanoke, if we want a move of God in our hearts, in our families, in our marriages, in our valley, and around the world, we have to get back to praying. We have to then get back to giving ourselves over to God, and we have to expect God to work. You say, well, how can I know God will work? The proof is at the cross. On the third day after your Messiah King went to the cross and he was buried in the tomb and his face was shrouded and people thought it was over, it wasn't over, it was just beginning and your Messiah King was raised. And when you cry out to your God and to your King, you are accessing the resurrection power of God to overcome the wickedness which so easily entangles us. Secondly, if we're going to overcome the wickedness which surrounds us. We must see wickedness from God's perspective. Verses 4 through 6 are some pretty, pretty tough sledding, some pretty difficult reading. I think sometimes that we are so hesitant to go to God as the daily battle rages against us. I think sometimes we're hesitant because we underestimate, get this, we underestimate the seriousness of sin. Would you agree with that? Jesus paid, he paid my debt, no big deal. I'll just ask for forgiveness tomorrow. And it's easy for us to come to a place where we get presumptive with the grace of God and we forget the weightiness and the costliness and the wickedness of sin. But we ought never assume that simply because sins are forgiven in Jesus that God has a toleration of sin. Oh, he doesn't tolerate sin. It costs his only son his life. Look at the language of verses 4 through 6. Sin and sinners are described as wickedness, evil, boastful, those who do iniquity, those who speak falsehood, a man of bloodshed and deceit. David uses seven terms to describe the completeness of the opposition of the wicked to the righteous way of God. 
The wicked are like the perverse of Sodom and Gomorrah. The boastful use loud, boisterous, and nonsensical behavior to stand against God's Messiah. But do you see that in verse 4? They will not stand before God in the judgment. Doers of iniquity speaks of those who plan deception and cause pain for others. Do you, do you get your kicks making, making life difficult for people? I, I must confess that I love to tickle my children. And sometimes I tickle my son so much that my daughter quotes in his behalf, fathers, do not exasperate your children, right? <laughs> but there, there's, there's still some flesh in your pastor where sometimes it's, it's fun to get a rise out of somebody. It's, it's fun, to, fun to trip somebody else up or, or cause them difficulty. I know, none of you are like that. It's just your pastor. But, but David says troublemakers, people who, who put stumbling blocks in the way, people who make your life difficult or want to interrupt the flow of your life, that, that they are included alongside of people who, who are murderers and liars and deceivers. The reality is there's a perfect storm of wickedness that wants to derail you in your Christian walk. It will lie to you. Do, do you know what the, the wickedness of this world will say to you? It'll say things to you like this. In a, in a marriage that is struggling, no infidelity, no unfaithfulness, just struggling. In a marriage that's struggling, wickedness will come along to you and it'll say this. You know what? You deserve better. Or, or on the job, when you're on a business trip and you're in the hotel room and there's a video box and you can select whatever you want to select, somebody will say, you know what? Nobody's going to know just this once. It, it will loudly boast of what it can accomplish in your life without God. It'll say, you don't need God. Just go be a self-made man. It'll stir up trouble just to get attention in order to divert away from the glory of God and of Christ. It will do everything possible to undermine the glory and the goodness that we find when we give ourselves completely over to God and his glory and his mission and his purposes in the world. How serious is this wickedness? How serious is this sin? Just one sin separates us from the, favor, from the favorable presence of God. Do you see that in verse 4? No evil dwells with you. How much evil? None. No. God hates all who do iniquity. In other words, all those who enjoy making life troublesome, he hates them all. And he abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. These are not ambiguous terms. Hate abhors None, all. God has no pleasure, verse 4, in wickedness. So what is our hope then? Because I don't know about you, but when I read these seven descriptions of the wicked, I see myself in some of them. 
What hope does the pastor have? What, ha what hope does anyone sitting in these chairs this morning have? Our only hope is that somehow, some way, the wicked would become the righteous. And in a way that God's perfect and holy hatred towards sin is still exercised. In other words, God has to judge sin for God to be God. God has to hate sin and sinners for God to be God. If you serve a God who doesn't hate wickedness and doesn't love righteousness to the extent that his pure love for righteousness causes him to hate all that is unrighteous, then you don't love God. You love some God that's made in your image, not the God who is revealed to us in the Bible. So where does this happen? How is it possible that God loves us in our sin and yet hates our sin. It happens in Christ at the cross where Jesus becomes sin for us and he pays the price for our guilt. Why do we hate wickedness, North Roanoke, even though we know the wickedness of our own hearts? Why do we hate it? We hate it because it costs our Savior his life. The cross upon which Jesus died is not just God's great love being given to sinners, but it is also God's great wrath coming down on his son who became sin to set you free from the power of sin. And part of the way that we get the victory over the sin which so easily entangles us is we look back to Calvary and we see that that was our sin on our Savior's shoulders and we hate it. We hate that sin just as God does. Hate evil. You who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones, he delivers them from the hand of the wicked. We need to get back, North Roanoke Baptist Church, to seeing wickedness as God sees wickedness. But thirdly, we must pursue God's presence and reject the world's promises. And I, I want to add this word. We must reject the world's empty promises you know, the world will promise you a whole bunch of stuff, and it's empty. While verses 4 through 6 describe God's great animosity toward the wicked, David is an adulterer. He's a murderer. He's a deceiver. And what does he declare in verse 7? I'm going to enter God's house. I'm going to go into where God lives. I'm going to dwell where God dwells. Sin can't dwell with God, but here's David the sinner saying, I'm going into God's house. How in the world is this possible? Only, just keep reading, look at verse 7. Only through the Lord's abundant, or his great, his bountiful loving kindness. His loving kindness, this word in Hebrew is the word kesed, and it's hard to know how to, to translate it. It's translated loving kindness. It's translated mercy. I like to translate it in this way. God's kessed is the covenant faithfulness of God. It's God's determination to never fail to keep his covenant, even though we failed him over and over and over again. Kidner writes this, David pauses to acknowledge that if God were to try his character instead of his case, he would be undone. We can enter God's house into his presence. Why? Because Jesus became sin for us and he went to the cross for us so that we might not only enter God's house, but so that we might also become God's house. Did, did you catch that? I know. Are you, are you awake this morning? When, when God 
through Jesus made the church. He calls the church the body of Christ. He calls it the bride of Christ. And look at what he calls the church over in Hebrews 10, 21. He calls the church the house of God. We don't have to wait for a temple to be built. We don't have to go to a temple. Jesus says that his spirit inhabits and it indwells local churches all around the world. And we have a king and a great priest over the house of God. So even though you stumbled this week, even though you failed this week, even though you know the wickedness in your own heart and your own family and your own life and the temptations and the battles that you're struggling and some of which you lost, when you come into the house of God, you don't come into the house of God because of the goodness that you've done. You come into the house of God with confidence entering his presence because of the goodness that he is and that he bestowed upon you, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Why do I wake up every Sunday morning so excited to be here? It's not because I get to be the one preaching the sermon, by the way. It's because we were made to enter into God's house, not the building, but with his people. We were made then to commune with God, to enter and then get this, to bow down in reverence, verse 7, to worship. Why do we sing? Why do we learn a new song about the beautiful, powerful, wonderful name of Jesus Christ, my King? Because we were made to worship this King. The word here, bow down, leads, literally means to fall face down in God's presence. In Christ, we've already been judged and in Christ, our death sentence has given us, has given way to a sentence of life through the resurrection. The faithfulness of God to keep his covenant despite our unfaithfulness should therefore lead us to fall down in gratitude and in wonder and in awe. When's the last time you fell down before your king? Perhaps not literally, but at least metaphorically. When's the last time you allowed yourself to linger at the cross and to behold the, the, his hands and his feet and his side and to fall down in worship at the God who gave himself for you? You were made to come into God's house and to be in his presence and to fall down in worship at the feet of your king. But David doesn't stop in verse 7. He writes verse 8. I love verse 8. You see, we don't... We don't just get together on Sunday for a, for a spiritual buzz or a spiritual high for an hour and then, and then check out the rest of the week. The reason we want to commune with God and lay down at his feet is because we want to walk in his righteous way. He asked God to put his righteous way before him, literally to put it in front of his face. Have you ever struggled with something in school, academically? I don't know when you hit the wall academically in something, and for some of you who are geniuses, it never happened, and God bless you, I can't stand you. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but for most of us, somewhere along the way, even for those who are gifted and special, and I, you know, they, they're just great, even for most of you, there's, a, there's a, a wall that you hit somewhere along the way. For me, it was AP Calculus. Man, I was cruising through all the disciplines. I was cruising through. I got to AP Calculus and derivatives and... Co I, what? I mean, I understand theoretically what you're trying to do, but now that I got to go do it on the paper, I never get the problem right. And the problem with math is, really, there shouldn't be partial credit because it's either right or wrong, which means 
even though the guy was giving me partial credit, I didn't feel good about getting all the answers wrong and getting enough partial credit to get a C. That didn't make me feel good about myself. And, and here's David saying, even though I know I can commune with you, even though that I know I can lay myself before you, the reality is as soon as I walk out of this building, as soon as I leave this place, I'm going to walk right back into the world that I know that you've just condemned and I'm going to have to live for you. So here's what I'm asking you to do, God. Make your way rise up before me right in front of my face. Make it so plain that I will not stray to the left or the right. Put your way smack dab in front of my face and guide me in it. Lead me in your way for your name's sake because I want to be white, hot, passionate for the way, the righteous way of God. God, make it plain. Why, why, does, he, why does he pray like this? Why does he talk like this? Because the reality is the world is full of people who want to tell you just the opposite. David, if you'll just compromise a little, maybe people will accept you as king. Jesus, you saved others, save yourself. Christian, you've gone long enough giving yourself to others. Why don't you just live for yourself for a while? Oh, they will flatter, verse 9, but a man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps, Proverbs 29, 5. There's nothing in their mouths that is reliable or established. Unlike God's word, which has creative power, which brings into being whatever he speaks, their words only lead to failure. And so David prays that God would take care of those who are speaking wickedness into his life in three ways. That he would declare them guilty, that their own schemes would collapse under their own weight, and that they would be separated from God and God's people. We find that in verse 10. And he prays all of this. Why? Because they are, their transgressions are many. What's a transgression? A transgression is a breach, a divide in the relationship between two parties, between God and man. And breaches in our relationship with God are rebellion, not against David, do you see that? But they are rebellion against God. So as God's covenant community here at North Roanoke Baptist Church, here's what you need to know about North Roanoke. We are not a perfect church. Every single one of us gathered here, whether we realize it or not, are sinners. Every one of us here left to our own devices have hearts, like Jeremiah said, that are deceitful and wicked above all things. But because of what Jesus has done in our lives, because of the spirit that he's poured out into us, we will not give in to these things. We will not go down without a fight. We're not going to accommodate sin and slander and violence and deceit and adultery and a host of other evils. Instead, we are constantly going to ask God for the strength to war against these things and to war against them together. But where do we find this strength? Where, where, where is this strength found? It's found in delighting in the Lord. Do you notice what David says in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 5? Let all who take refuge. You see, if you finished in verse 10, you'd think, you'd think David was just like, well, just kill everybody, God. Just be done with them. No, his hope is verse 11, that even the wicked would come to take refuge in God. 
in Christ the King, and that they would be glad, and that they would ever sing for joy. Do you know what it means to ever sing for joy? It means to sing forever, that their song would go on and on and on, that they would forever sing with the angels and the elders in Revelation chapter 5, worthy is the Lamb to receive glory and power and honor and blessing. Why? Because through the blood of Jesus, he's purchased people out of every tribe and tongue and language and nation that we would worship God, that we would delight in God, that those who love your name. Do you love the name of God? What a beautiful name it is. What a powerful name it is. What a wonderful name it is. Do you love the name of the Lord, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess? Do you delight in the victory of this one whose name is above every other name, the one who came down in order to conquer and crush the power of sin and Satan and death and to give you life? Do you delight in that name? And then he says that we may exult in you. You know what the word exult means? It means to celebrate victory. David goes in to this prayer asking God to deliver him from the wickedness surrounding him. And in verse 11 he says, I delight in your name because of the victory you are giving me. Hannah, when she prays for a son year after year, and she doesn't get a son, and then God removes her barrenness and gives her Samuel, what does she do in chapter 2, verse 1 of 1 Samuel? She exults in the Lord. God has come through. He has conquered the sin in my life, and he has given victory. We exult in God. Why? Because this is the God who blesses the righteous man and surrounds him with favor like a giant shield. This morning, I don't know where you are in your walk with Christ, but when you come to Christ the righteous man, his victory and his protection becomes your victory and your shield. If you're battling by yourself this morning, if the world is threatening to overtake you this morning, today is the day to come to Jesus and to find the only power great enough to overcome the ways of the world. So this morning, as I invite our instrumentalists to come, here's what I want to ask you to do. If you know Jesus, delight in his name. Sing out to this God who has given you victory. But if you don't yet know this king, might it be today, would be the day that you come to Christ the warrior king and find strength unimaginable to conquer the wickedness of the world.